only did he become a Christian as a result of taking his investigative skills as a Los Angeles um, criminal investigator, but he, be, he ended up leaving his career, and uh, today he travels the country training people in how to look at the Gospels and to go back and to mine out the truths that, that are there and to look at it as a historical document that can be evaluated. And he spends a lot of time talking with atheists and people who are cynical about Christian faith and a fascinating guy. I thought it would be worth playing out his faith story this morning as we're looking at a number, uh, another of these uh, biographical sketches, these eyewitness accounts that are at the beginning of the Gospels. And today we're looking at the story of Joseph. So um, let's read together Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25. Uh, this is the account of um, Joseph's story of bringing Joseph on board where Mary already had been visited by an angel. And at, at the point where we discovered Joseph, he was a doubter and a skeptic, and he was dealing with Christmas doubts. Let's do this together. This is how the birth of the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. God, our Father, as we near the time when people around the world stop and celebrate the birth of Jesus, pray that you would continue to warm our hearts with the wonder and the knowledge that comes from the Gospels. Thank you for these eyewitness accounts of people who were there and people who handed off their stories so that they would be written down by the Gospel writers, Matthew and Luke in particular. Thank you for sending Jesus into our world. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving up all of the comforts of heaven, all of the recognition, the glory, the experience of God's majesty, the authority that you held in order to come into this world that human beings might see what God is like with human flesh, that we would understand from someone who had been with God and who was God and who knew God what he really wants. And I pray that uh, you will not only fill our hearts with faith, but that you will also give us uh, a passion and a desire to help friends come to know the very Savior who's been sent into this world. 
This morning we, we ask that you'd give us understanding into your word, but also that you would send us back out as we are people who are filled with the, the wonder and the joy of your story. I think of the friends who uh, don't know Jesus or the family members who are hardest to talk to about faith issues. Lord, we pray that you'd create a hunger and a desire, an opportunity, a right moment when it's okay to talk about what Christmas is all about. Give us the graciousness to tell our stories without shoving things down anybody's throat, without threatening anybody or making them uh, feel that we're buttonholing them in the wrong time. Use the celebrations, use the questions that come up naturally to prompt many conversations. Lord, we pray for wisdom and we pray for your help in areas where we need strength. There are members of our congregation who are going through phenomenal health crises or personal crises, and we ask that you would intervene, that you grant strength, wisdom, courage, knowledge to act in the way that each one should act, and to lean on you when it seems like all strength is gone. Thank you for today. Thank you that we can gather together and encourage each other. We can worship you and sing songs that remind us of the glory of this season. Thank you for your word that we can ponder over and pick apart and then begin to apply in our lives. So we ask that you would take this time and use it well in Jesus' name. The airplane is one of the past century's most valued and life-changing inventions. You and I see planes flying overhead so frequently that we hardly notice. That is, unless you live along the ocean near Hull or Wollaston, where early morning and late night flight patterns disrupt your sleep. Yet the reality of human flight has not always been taken for granted. I recently listened to the audio version of David McCullough's fascinating book on the Wright brothers. And Wilbur and Orville Wright were bicycle shop owners who were also self-taught engineers and inventors. Fascinating people that they figured out the things that they did without being formally schooled that way. Although others had experimented with attempts at human flight earlier, it was Wilbur and Orville, after years of trial and error, who found a way to launch the first sustained motorized human-piloted flight. Their experiments mostly took place in secret along the beaches of North Carolina's Outer Banks. And on December 17, 1903, their fourth attempt of the day, piloted by Wilbur, lasted 57 seconds. That was the first sustained flight in air with a human being on board. Later that day, the brothers sent a telegram back to their father in Dayton, Ohio, where they lived. They asked him to inform the local newspaper there so that their own hometown paper, the Dayton Journal, would have the honor of the first report of a manned flight. But the editor didn't believe that human flight was possible. He doubted the report. So the next day's journal reported simply that the Wright brothers were returning home without ever mentioning their first flight. In 1970, some 67 years later, a columnist for the Dayton Journal Herald wrote a story on what really happened that day. Another Wright brother, Lauren, had been sent to deliver the official statement about this manned flight to the press. 
the AP writer on duty that day was a man named Frank Tunnison. And when Tunnison heard his story, he yawned and said, 57 seconds, hey? If it had been 57 minutes, then it might have been a news items. And he completely ignored the story. However, the Wright brothers, against the Wright brothers' wishes, the telegraph operator who had first sent that message back to their dad leaked the news to a Virginia newspaper. And soon the word was out and the Wright brothers found themselves among the world's most famous celebrities. Here's the point of that simple story. The Wright brothers were neither the first nor the last people to wrestle with doubt in relationship to an important, life-changing piece of news. This morning, we're going to talk about Christmas doubts. This is the third part of our December series that we're calling Christmas Interruptions. All this month, we've been focusing on how God interrupts the lives of real people in order to enfold them into his grand redemptive work in the world. Today, we're going to look at the process that led a man named Joseph through doubt to faithful participation in God's redemptive plan. Why bother? Why, why is this important to us? Well, a 2017 Pew uh, Research Forum shined a light on the decline of Christian belief. They said, while 90% of the people in our country will celebrate Christmas in some way, currently only 55% of American adults view Christmas as a religious holiday as opposed to a merely cultural one. And the number has been going down, trending down year by year for several years. So perhaps there is something that many of us here can learn from Joseph and his struggle. The main idea that I want to get across to you is very simple. God interrupts to offer reasons to believe instead of expecting people to blindly follow. He never calls us to, to follow without giving us reasons for doing so. I'd like to look at some confirming factors that were part of the process of Joseph coming on board rather than remaining a doubter and a skeptic and disassociating himself with Mary. The question behind all this is, what moved Joseph from doubt to decisive action? The first factor had to do with angelic visits. It says in uh, Luke chapter 1, the angel answered, he's speaking to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the one to be born will be called the Son of God. This was not the story of a miraculous excuse. This was the account of a miraculous arrival. Mary did not claim merely that the Spirit of God had caused her to be pregnant, but that the child to be born would be the Son of God. The angel Gabriel, who appeared to Mary, revealed these details about the child. First, he would be called the Son of the Most High, an Old Testament title that we examined a couple of weeks ago, meaning that God is above all. There is no other greater being. He's, he's greater than all the angels. He's greater than all the gods that people create for themselves. The second was that he would rule on King David's throne. Israel had been looking for a ruler from David's line because there had been promises going all the way back to the time of David that one of his descendants would ultimately reign on his throne forever. And the angel now delivered the third vital piece of, of news for Mary on that day that this reign would indeed last forever. She told Joseph, and Joseph struggled with this news. 
As a, as a man with royal roots, Joseph knew all the prophecies that had been handed down through Scripture and through his family. So hearing about the news, hearing about the prophecies was not the problem for him. The question was, could he connect those prophecies from the past to what was happening right in his own life? And now an angel was announcing and confirming this to Mary. In addition, Mary's cousin Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah had already, already received an angelic visit of their own, announcing the birth of John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner, the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. So Joseph, first of all, knew about these angelic vi uh, visits. The second confirming, confir uh, confirming factor was a reassuring dream. And we read about that here in Matthew's first chapter. Here it says, but after Joseph had considered this, after he'd considered divorcing Mary, it would have been a legal process and it would have been damaging to Mary. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to your son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Mary's report of an angelic message had not been enough for Joseph. Joseph needed to know for himself that this was true and not made up. Now, we mentioned that Joseph had privately already weighed Mary's story. It had not been convincing because we're told that he had decided to break the betrothal. Because this was both a legal and religious matter in Israel, it had negative connotations. Joseph had then decided to do this quietly, privately. He did not want any harm to come Mary's way. And while he was wrestling with this dilemma and how to break the news to her, an angel appeared to Joseph too, this time in a dream. This happened even though Joseph was full of doubts, full of skepticism. Here's a hint. Sometimes the very people that God breaks through to are people who are wrestling with doubt and wrestling with, with skepticism. Not always to those who are completely convinced. And the angel's message confirmed the precise details that Joseph had heard from Mary. Many people refuse to believe things that they themselves have not seen. Like the girl who said to me once, I don't believe in your God, and then acts as if God doesn't exist. My response to her that day is that just because she doesn't believe something doesn't mean that it isn't true. If God really exists, even her disbelief will not be enough. It will not make God go away. Remember the Wright brothers and the Dayton Journal? They only began to report on their flying machine after other newspapers had scooped the story. In fact, they, were only, they only celebrated here in the United States long after the original flight by the Wright brothers had been demonstrated over and over again by their flying expertise to audience in the thousands in Paris. And they became American celebrities because people in another country were even more interested in the story and believed it first. So Joseph didn't believe in Mary's angelic visit simply because she told him so. Joseph didn't believe until he had an angelic visit of his own and it was information that had come directly to him that convinced him. Now, this may not help some people who struggle with the Christmas story. And God doesn't promise to recreate exactly the same kind of events 
that convinced Mary or that convinced Joseph. But it does reveal that God didn't ask Joseph to believe an unsupported story. And you and I now have the records that we can pick apart and compare side by side and see how one supports the other and convinces the other. And the angel's message in that dream marked a turning point for Joseph, which also becomes a part of the evidence and a part of the story that we rehearse and that we enjoy. God interrupts to offer reasons to believe instead of expecting people to blindly follow. Then there's a third factor that influenced Joseph. It was an assignment from God. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how God has assignments for people when he seems to show up in their lives. And he had an assignment for Mary, and now he's announcing an assignment for Joseph as well. Matthew 121 records this. The angel said to Joseph, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Here's the reality behind this. God never planned for Joseph to remain passively uninvolved. He might not last longer in the story, and we don't know what happened to Joseph by the time that Jesus goes public with his ministry. But, Joseph had, but Jesus, God had an exciting role for Joseph to fill as part of this overall worldwide redemptive plan. By counting Jesus as his own son, Joseph would give Jesus legal status in the line of David. By giving the boy the name Jesus, Joseph was endorsing the plan of God for Israel and for the world. By making a family with Mary, Joseph was providing protection during Jesus' most vulnerable childhood years, not knowing how Jesus would end up even being his own savior. In a similar way, God's goal is never for you to remain passively involved. There are roles that he expects us to play and that he calls us into, and he has a meaningful role for you to play, whether you believe that or not. Roles that stretch us and involve us in his work in the world today. Roles that require responsibility, determination, vision, and boldness. There's no such thing as a true Christian who is not sent by God. A Christian who is not sent by God is either brand new to faith, poorly taught, or in denial, or about to get a wake-up call of his or her own. God interrupts our lives at these moments to shock us, to pull us, to convince us, to move us out of lethargy, out of passivity, into joy and a desire to tell the people who matter most what we've come to know or come to understand or we've come to, to, to bank on in our lives. Don't be surprised if God has an assignment for you. Oh, he's not going to take you back into the original story and add to the account of Mary and Joseph, but his story continues to run today as it spreads around the world and as people from town by town and city by city and country by country come to faith in Jesus. There's a story that is playing out as God renews lives and he rescues lives and, and he changes us from the inside out. And there's nothing more thrilling than being a part of that ongoing story. When your willingness to tell somebody else about what God has been doing inside of you results in changes in their lives. It fills you with meaning. It fills you with purpose. And that belongs to all of us as the church. And then there was a fourth confirming factor. 
It had to do with a biblical confirmation that was given. Matthew writes in verses 22 and 23 some very important insights. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And then he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the angel quoted directly from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This was something that Joseph could evaluate, could look at, could investigate. He could go back to the synagogue, find the scroll of Isaiah, unroll it, and read for himself what had been written some 600 years earlier. What would Joseph have found if he unrolled that scroll? And I have no doubt that he did. At least nine times, Matthew shows how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies specifically about the Messiah. These prophecies were culminations, completions, or fulfillments of revelations that God had given. Often, these revealed truths existed in veiled form. So this one specific promise is worth focusing on. Isaiah 7.14 included a promise for Isaiah's time that also had deeper meaning in Joseph's day as well. If we unpack it, this is the way, this, these are the things that we would discover. That first of all, Isaiah 7.14 referred to a child who would be born to Isaiah's future wife. This birth would be a sign to Judah's king Ahaz that the Lord would not allow the bloodline of David to die out even though Ahaz was a spiritually wicked king and was not interested in what God was doing in the world. This was a sign to Isaiah and to those who were the people of faith and the keepers of the flame of the promises of God that were still alive. And so the deeper meaning then pointed to the birth of Jesus. Through Mary, God's son would dwell with his people. He would be given a title, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Oh, his formal name was Jesus, but there were many titles that Isaiah would lay out that belonged to the Messiah. And here's the first of them, that he would be Emmanuel, the presence of God with us. Imagine Isaiah being the deliverer of that message and wondering what it meant long term and how God would use all of that. That only became clear in the first century with the angelic announcements about the birth of Jesus, that God was up to something big and unusual and grand and powerful and inclusive. God interrupted Joseph's life to offer him reasons to believe instead of expecting Joseph to blindly follow. And that's what he does with us as well. Now here's the amazing thing. There were some additional factors that were soon to come Joseph's way. The question that we were looking at is, what moved Joseph from doubt to decisive action? And so all of these first four factors that we looked in that are part of this passage uh, were a part of that, but they merged together with some of the other details that we discover in the Gospels, like shepherds who heard the heavenly host. By the night of Jesus' birth, the supernatural signs no longer were relegated only to the immediate family of Jesus. But now a group of shepherds who'd been out in the fields had also received the grand announcement that God was doing something unique and powerful, the fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecy and waiting. And the shepherds in the field near Bethlehem heard that message in the skies 
And then they went down into the village to find out where was this child born. And they knelt before Jesus and they worshipped. And the text says that they went back after that, praising God and, and in, the, in the hearing of all of the people. So here they are in the middle of the night, these shepherds who found their way to wherever Joseph and Mary and Jesus were at that point, found that exact place, saw the child still in the manger. Can you imagine that? They're not looking for a crush on somebody's mantle. They're looking for the exact manger with the real child Jesus himself. And their response was, they went back through the streets of that town, back to their pastures, shouting out praises to God. I find that warming, heartwarming, and wonderful that here are these first non-family members, these first outsiders to learn what God was doing with Jesus, couldn't hold back with their immediate praises. So you may not be a singer but when you find yourself in the midst of the carols, in the midst of the singing that goes on at Christmas time, you got to realize something, that this started on that very first night with the shepherds, whether they were in tune or out of tune, whether they had a choir director or not, they're singing the praises of the Messiah having arrived to all of their neighbors. These are not just traditions that came up over the hundreds of years and thousands of years since Jesus. It started that night with the shepherds. Another additional factor was that there were prophets who were waiting for Jesus. After the shepherds went home, the supernatural confirmations did not stop. And they filled Joseph and Mary with wonder. Luke records two people Simeon and a woman named Anna, a prophet and a prophetess, who had been waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Simeon had been told by the Lord, whether that was a whisper or a voice that he heard, we don't know, that he wouldn't die until he had seen the coming of the Messiah. And one morning he's waiting off in the wings of the temple in, in Jerusalem when Joseph and Mary brought their eight-day-old firstborn son to dedicate him in the temple. They brought a poor family's offering of two pigeons with them. Such precise details that shows how faithful they were trying to be at each step. And as they began to make their way toward the temple for this dedication, Simeon came out of the shadows and began to speak to them. And here are these people that Joseph and Mary have never met before. Again, non-family members start telling them about the significance of the child that they were holding, this eight-day-old baby. Simeon expresses that in a song. And he says, in effect, now you can dismiss me, Lord. Now I can die because I've seen enough. I've seen the coming of the Messiah, and I know that I can trust you for the rest of the story. And even though this is only an eight-day-old child, he knows this is the Savior. And Mary is warned that this child will cause the rising and falling of many but a sword will pierce her own soul too. And she gets a glimpse of the difficulty that would yet come. So there were shepherds who heard the heavenly host. There were prophets who had been waiting for Jesus literally all their lives. And then there were kingmakers from distant lands. The name Magi is not made up here in the Gospels. It was known earlier in earlier times of the Bible. It harkens all the way back to the days of Daniel and Babylon, 
where we first discover that term being used in Scripture. So these were wise men who studied all the religions and had no doubt been introduced to the Old Testament books, the Hebrew Scriptures, during the time of Israel's exile. Studying those books, studying the prophecies, they wondered when this child would come. These magi, known as kingmakers in their own culture, were revered for their wisdom, and they traveled a great distance, brought gifts with them, and when they arrived, sometime later, not on that Christmas birth date, but sometime between that point and as much as two years later, they worshipped at the feet of Jesus. How do we know that it was somewhere in that two-year frame? Because the account says that when Herod learned that they had not come back to him and told him exactly where they found the child, that they went back a different way and he realized he'd been duped by the wise men. And then he had his soldiers put to death all the little boys in Bethlehem who were two years and under. And so they knew that, they were, that Herod was searching for a child of approximately that age, which gives us some estimate of the time frame or the range of time of when these magi had shown up. Shepherds and prophets and kingmakers or wise men. And then there was a fourth factor. God continued to invade Joseph's life and to interrupt him from time to time with messages of divine protection. So Matthew 2, verse 13 records this story. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. The final confirming event for Joseph came with a second dream. By now, Joseph was used to the idea that God was going to communicate to Mary and to him, and perhaps he was even used to the idea that God would use dreams to communicate his guiding messages to Joseph. Not only was he to raise this child of God, but new instructions continued to arrive, telling Joseph to take his young family and to flee. And so Matthew writes that at once Joseph responded in faith and obeyed the message that he received in that dream. When Herod realized that he had been dodged or duped by the wise men, he acted with brutality. Herod's soldiers soon swept into Bethlehem with the gory task of wiping out every male child under the age of two. He had not spared his own sons, who had seemed a threat to his throne, and he would not spare these boys either. But Joseph had already left. He kept his family in Egypt until one more angel-filled dream, the last one that we know of in Joseph's life, told him that it was finally safe for him to come home. The son at the center of God's redemptive plan for the world was a threat to a murderous tyrant like Herod, and more importantly, to the evil one. But God had given Joseph the assignment of a lifetime. The role for a man of character and courage to stand beside a young woman of faith and fortitude. I don't know where you're at in your faith journey. Maybe you're a longtime Christian thinking God doesn't really have a purpose for you, or maybe you're somebody who's still kicking the tires and evaluating. But I do know this 
if you dare to wrestle through and past your doubts, I am convinced that our God is still calling for men of character and courage and women of faith and fortitude to take up daring roles that further spread the good news of his kingdom throughout a dangerous world today. It may not be dangerous where you and I live, but in many parts of this world, it is a dangerous thing to be a Christian. If you read any of the world news accounts, the crackdown on Christians in China today is absolutely brutal. The things that are happening in some of the Islamic countries today to Christians are absolutely unbelievable compared with our society. And yet, the church grows, the message spreads, and God continues to use men of character and courage and women of faith and fortitude, in other words, the same thing, just expressed with different alliterated words today. And he will use you. God interrupts to offer reasons to believe instead of expecting people to blindly follow. And my conviction is that if you're listening, and if I'm listening, God continues to interrupt our, our lives today to grab our attention. He will use whatever it takes in order to bring us to a place where we sign on and say, okay, Lord, how do you want to use me next? And that's the point where he has us right where he wants us. And that's when faith gets exciting. And so Christmas is not a boring recitation of the past. Christmas is an invitation to the exciting. If you and I believe in the same God who interrupted Joseph's life and who interrupted Mary's life, he will interrupt your life too. Here's the question I want to leave you with. It's the question that's ringing throughout this series all this month. Are you interruptible? Or are you so set in your patterns, so set in your ways that there's no room left for God to use you in a new way? My conviction is that God wants to wake us up out of our slumber, out of our familiarity with the story, in order to bring us into an exciting adventure. And if your heart and mind are open, he's going to excite your life with the same Christmas truth that set Joseph's life on fire. Let's pray. God, I pray that uh, you will continue to warm our hearts with memories of the past, with the times we've heard these same scriptures read or we have pondered them ourselves and picked them apart. And I pray that you will not only warm our hearts, but that you will open them wide so that you might involve and include each of us in what you desire to do here today in the midst of our own homes and neighborhoods and towns and workplaces. We pray that this message of Jesus and his arrival, this message of your redemptive plan, this message that you are a God who does not leave people alone, but who comes into our world, would continue to excite us and would continue to spread from neighbor to neighbor and friend to friend. Forgive us for the times when we have grown cold with this historic message thinking it's just old time stuff. Forgive us for the times when we have thought that you only act in, with power or with new revelation in the past. Open our hearts to the way that you allow us to see new things and you warm us up with the same truths that create a better future today and tomorrow. Let us each discover how you want to use us again 
as we respond to you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, looking forward to next week and everything that it brings as we celebrate.